millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm Peter, and who are you? I'm Gary. And here we are at your home again. I know, we keep doing it here. Polly chucked you out or something. <laughs> she often wants to, yeah. Uh, well, we've got a we've got a really exciting. Well, we've got an interesting podcast coming up. It's no excitement really. It's a, it's a, it's got an interesting title. It's called Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry. Why are we, we waiting? Why? <laughs> no, that's enough of that. Uh, it's it's uh, they're waiting to go into action. That the last episode we did on the five D four fires was uh, looking at, uh, at, at at the early time when they were in Ireland, and then suddenly they they, they were a recce regiment, weren't they? Or just a recce regiment? Just they were a recce regiment whose role was to scout ahead of uh, the division, which. Uh, uh, an important role, but uh, it's changing, isn't it? They're, they're going to become an armoured regiment. So, uh, so what, what what does that entail? Do they stay in Ireland? No. Where do they go? Well, they moved back to England on the fifth of July, nineteen forty-one, and they moved to the seaside town of Whitby in Yorkshire as their new home. I believe it's famous for its fish and chips, or is that Dracula? One of the two. <laughs> Fish and chips and Dracula spring to mind. Yeah. Now, any hopes or fears of an immediate active service deployment were uh, thwarted or allayed, depends on your point of view, I suppose, <laughs> uh, by this changing role, as it meant that, in effect, their training's got to start all over again. Oh, no. And what, what tanks are they going to... Because uh, the Mark 7... Was it Mark 6? Mark 6B. Oh, right. Well, sure. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's not going to be uh, what they're on it. That that's a reconnaissance tank. But so what are they going to have? Well, they get a mixture of Valentine and Matilda tanks. Now they really didn't know at this point that this training would end up lasting for a further three long years. Hence, why are we waiting? Now, who do they join? They join 29th Armoured Brigade. Who's in that, Gary? There's a quick test for you. Uh, well, there was the 23rd Hussars. Fine body men. The 24th Lancers. Fine body men. The 2nd Fife and 4th Fire Yeomanry themselves. Our heroes. And the motorised infantry of the 8th 
Rifle Brigade. Now, there's another armoured brigade. That's the 30th armoured brigade. They're gathered there at Helmsing, close by. Then the 11th support group was uh, at Moulton, also close by. Uh, and these units together, the, the support group's a mixture of uh, artillery and things, all the ancillary units. And there's also got the armoured cars of 27 Lancers. And there's lots of things. All together, this is the 11th armoured division, which had been formed, Gary, in December 1940. Uh how big is it in total? Give, give, how do we get an idea of the size of it across to people? Well, one way would be to, to think about how many tanks they actually had. And they can deploy some 350 tanks and three motorised battalions of infantry. So they're, they're a powerful force. The powerful force. Who's in charge? Now, interestingly, they were commanded <laughs> by remembered uh, who's in charge. Major General Percy Hobart. Uh, <laughs> An inspired, but some would say controversial, choice as divisional commander. So what's his background? In 1934, he'd become, uh, he was brigadier in charge of the first ever permanent British Armoured Brigade. And he'd been working hard developing his own theories uh, and, and, and in the, the, on the practice of armoured warfare, how it was to be done. He, he's a competent soldier, really competent. But there's another side to him, isn't there? And uh, I know you want to make some personal remarks here, so I'll let you get on with it. Well, Hobart had acquired the reputation of being difficult, <laughs> uh, characterised by both his unconventionality and an evil temper, which led to several prolonged feuds with senior officers which would return to haunt him after a series of disputes with high command he was shuffled off into premature retirement early in 1940 now guess what he does uh i don't know his reaction <laughs> was to join the newly formed local defense volunteers as a lance corporal gary He's following in your... Well, no, he's pre, no. pre-cursing your footsteps. Well, he's done the reverse. I started as a Lance Corporal, but in civilian life, had a couple of colonels working for me. So you were a brigadier. a brigadier. yeah. <laughs> now, as the Blitzkrieg raged in France and the Low Countries in May 1940, Britain's foremost expert in tank warfare was busy preparing for the defence of his hometown of Chipping Camden. An important location, no doubt. But is it really where you want your foremost uh, expert in tank warfare? No, and in August 1940, a press campaign against the decision to retire Hobart reached the ears of our hero, Winston Churchill. Um, All right. (laughs) Now, as a result, Hobart was re-enlisted and posted posted to the 11th Armoured Division in 1941. To command it, yeah. And uh, he he does stamp his mark on it. He, he leaves his mark wherever he goes. That's one of the... Uh, yeah. um, he, he, um, he's, he's not always in good health, uh, uh, but often when people are in poor health, they don't have sort of that zing and zest. But what, what's he like? Oh, no, he had energy and commitment to spare, driving his division onwards and upwards to attain new heights of efficiency. Now, let's get back to our heroes, the 54 first, uh, second 54 first. Uh, now, they've got A, B and C. They're the Sabre squadrons and they're equipped with the new Valentine tanks. A few Matilda, uh, Matildas are issued to the headquarters troops. Now, let's talk about the Valentine. What would you say, if you're thinking about the Valentine, how would you describe it? We're not experts, but we want to preempt preface this by saying we're, neither of us are experts on any of this. Or anything. Or anything. <laughs> or anybody. Uh, but t- 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 give us an idea about the Valentine. Game. Well, the Valentine was a typical British tank of the period in that it was designed in a rush as a stopgap when the British had finally realised that they lacked any medium tanks and war was looming. Peak. So what's the, what's the plus side? Well, it was a good looking tank. 
It was a bit quicker than the Matilda, quite spacious and comfortable for the three-man crew. It also had reasonable armour protection, at least by the standards of the early war. Now, best of all, it was mechanically reliable. What's the big negative, though? I, I can sense them. You haven't mentioned the armament. What's Is that is that adequate? Well, that was the big negative. It was totally inadequate. Uh, 40 millimeter. that's a two-pounder gun, which uh, left it outranged and outpunched by its German contemporaries. Yet, compared to the visibly obsolescent Mark 6B, the Valentine was a real tank. Yeah, it's all it's all a matter of it was much better than the Mark Six B, and it you know to, it exuded a sort of untrammeled power to those who don't know any what they're doing. Now, one of those I'm going to to read a quote from Trooper Ron Forbes, Four Squadron, Four Troop. B squadron and he said this there's something about driving a tank you feel as if you've got a powerful vehicle under under you on these schemes you were driving over rough ground and it was like being on the big dipper sometimes i just enjoyed it they were good to drive you were on your own you didn't have a co-driver you were sitting in the middle of the tank your view was fairly restricted as it always is in a tank you just had your two levers your gear lever your accelerator only a two-pounder gun and a B-Sound machine gun. Useless as far as modern weapons go, but against the stuff the germs had, they were useless. And and that's that's he summed it up there pretty well. He enjoyed it, he liked it, but he was just getting, you know, later on he realises they're just no good. Now that summer, the second five and four file yeomanry were kept busy training in their new role. Individual skills had to be acquired and thoroughly mastered. Then the Valentine commanders, gunners and drivers, had to mould themselves into an efficient tank crew, working together as a seamless whole. Now, the, so the, it, it's sort of the British Army way, isn't it? You start at individual level, how do you drive? Then you become a, a tank crew, and then you start to have small-scale exercises as a troop, a squadron, and then where, does it, where how does it all finish? How does it culminate? It, it's the standard... I think it's a standard pattern of military training now, isn't it? Yeah, now... After a series of small-scale exercises on the Yorkshire Moors, the annual training peaked in October 1941 with the eponymous Exercise Percy. Named after the governor, eh? And, and I'm going Ooh. to read what Sergeant Alex Gilchrist of HQ Squadron, he's been promoted, I think it was Lance Corporal. Yeah, they, they, they do get promoted. Yeah, yeah, since uh, our last podcast. And sadly, it's you that didn't get Oh, yeah, promoted. <laughs> that's true. Again, I did the reverse. Now, he's of the HQ Squadron, and he says... We did some wonderful schemes and I became aware of what it was like to go into battle. We were properly organised. We were taking commands coming down the chain of command. When the umpires told you your tank had been knocked out because you had taken up a silly position on the moors, when you should have gone hull down so that the tank commander could see, but they couldn't see you. When the umpire came along and said, you're out, you're killed, for the first time you began to realise what it was all about. Now... It's the, the the interviews show it up and the the, the regimental history of uh, 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 the time. So they didn't shine the the, the second five and four five year on exercise Percy, and with a result that the colonel of the time, Lieutenant Colonel Edward Sword, is uh, moved on, as they say. Uh, who replaces him? Well, he's replaced in October nineteen forty one by Lieutenant Colonel George Cooper, uh, and he takes over command of the second five and four file yeomanry. Now, who's he? G- give me a, a description. I'm thinking of you as a, a well, except uh, that uh, you're a dwarf and he's tall. But to, to get describe him. 
Well, he was uh, another regular officer, a big man, over six foot tall, and an ex-army boxing champion. Now, that had left him with a distinctive damaged nose. He proved to be a real character, as he he had also been a pre-war racing driver and would race about in his Humber staff car. Yeah, I'll tell you something. He he was actually arrested for speeding, Gary. (laughs) Well, how do you think the the lads responded to this? Because he also was known as a strict disciplinarian. He actually brought in guardsmen instructors to to sort of improve the overall level of discipline and drill. Uh, But but how do you think the men responded to the overall package? Disciplinarian, but character. Despite that, he was nevertheless popular with the men they appreciated his idiosyncrasies pronounce that perfectly now bigger changes were afoot as the whole of the 11th armoured division was recast and reorganised to reflect the lessons learnt in the North African campaign well yes it had become evident in North Africa that they needed more armoured divisions but they had to have a change in their composition the Germans they'd already reduced the armoured element within their panzer divisions and the British now follow suit what they need is a mixture so they need more infantry close at hand to deal with any strong German defensive positions that might bar their way or to establish a bridgehead across a river not in the west not in the western desert but you know other place and they also had realized they need far more artillery now we've talked about this when we we're talking about the south not who are an artillery regiment they uh, it becomes more and more crucial that 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 concentrated artillery fire and that means you have to concentrate the the, the batteries to, to to get that concentrated fire so so what 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 uh, reforms are made to sort of reflect this uh, the, these things well as a result the 30th armor brigades dispatched to form the new of a new armoured division and a whole new lorried infantry brigade, the 159th Brigade, was added and extra artillery units. So more. So basically, an armoured division is perversely now going to have more infantry. It, it is a mixture now. More, it's going to have that. An armoured brigade, it's going to have uh, a, a lorried brigade, and it's going to have more artillery. Uh, so, so where do they go to next? Well, in May 1942, the 2nd, 5th and 4th Fire Yeomanry moved to the Hove area. Ooh. By this time, they were being re-equipped with the Crusader cruiser tank, another typically British series of tank design compromises. Yeah, it, this is classic, isn't it? And it, it, It's one step forward and two steps back from the Valentine in many ways. It's a cruiser tank. So, so what does you think that means? Well, certainly faster. Uh, but... It had even thinner armour, and uh, did, what, what gun did it have? Any no, step? Still only had the two-pounder pop gun as a main armament. Although some six-pounder versions did begin to appear later in that summer. Yeah, not many. Um, it, uh, but there's there's something else that absolutely puts a bloody cap on it as far as the lads are concerned. What's that? Well, it's far less mechanically reliable. So th- this is. So what do you think the lads have to do? Oh, they've just got to make the best of it. Now, the continuous programme is going on of armoured brigade and divisional training all across the South Downs. They were not only training as a tank regiment, uh, but they're practising their liaison with the infantry, artillery and recce regiment. And this culminates in a 14-day extravaganza. This is Excise Tiger. Whose brainwave is this? Well, that's the creation of Lieutenant General Bernard Montgomery of South Eastern Command. We've heard of him, haven't we? It was the largest exercise held in Britain up to that date, and it involved over a 100,000 troops stretching its tentacles out all across southern England. Ooh. Now, how do you think how do you think the lads are feeling with all this training? Well, by the end of these exercises, there's a growing confidence that they were at last ready for deployment to the shooting war. Yet, 
still no active service seemed to be on the horizon. More training, more training, more training. Now, the composition of the regiment itself is gradually train training, changing. changing. Why do you think it's changing? Well, it's the, there's a, a, a number of English drafts begin to swell rapidly. And that's because there's more English than there are Scots. So if, you, if you're looking at the army as a whole, there's always going to be English drafts sent to, to units when they start to... To, 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 it's just inevitable. Uh, who, 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 who should we pick? Uh, let's. Who should we look at? Well, amongst them uh, was Roy Valence, who came from Suffolk, uh, but he'd worked as a printer in London pre-war. He was initially posted as a spare crew member to A Squadron, and uh, it would become his home, but it wasn't immediately obvious. And this is what Trooper Roy Valence, uh, 4 Troop A Squadron, had to say. They were all Scotsmen. There were very few Sassanac members there at all. I was the only English chap in my troop. So life was quite difficult. I didn't know what they were saying after time. I hadn't heard many Scotsmen talking in my young life then. They seemed to talk very rapidly and they had a lot of slang which I'd never been acquainted with. They seemed to not really welcome Sassanacs. Naturally, my leg was pulled a bit. Quite friendly provided you take it with a smile on your face. <laughs> so not friendly at all, no. really. Um, now, what, what, one chap I really like is a rather difficult... He, he's, the interview's great fun. Uh, he, he's a difficult man in many ways. He's also very amusing. I liked him a lot. He's John Gray. He'd worked in a cooperative store in London. He was a convinced Labour Party activist, and his, uh, father, his father before him was a trade union activist, and he'd actually been a, almost a conscientious objector before he decided to do his bit. Uh, and, and you're going to be John Gray. And uh, this is a typical quote from him. I got a card inviting me to join His Majesty's Armed Forces. I went to the label exchange with this card, was given a medical, and you were asked what service that you'd like to go into. I said, I would like to go into the Navy. If I can't go in the Navy, I'll go in the Air Force. I'll even go as a rear gunner. But if I have to go in the Army, I don't want to go in the tanks. The fear I had all the time of burning to death, that was what frightened me. Where did I finish up? If I said, please put me in the tanks, I would have been in the Navy as a cook or something. He was put in the tanks. <laughs> that is classic army, isn't it? You, you, you're aware of that from your time. It, it never changes, really. Um, now, so what's going on? The, uh, August 1942, the second Fife and Forefathers moved to a proper Nissan hutted camp at Fornham All Saints in sunny Suffolk. Um, now, what's going on? Uh, by late 1942, they, they started to think that the 11th Armoured Division would be sent out as a reinforcement to North Africa. Um, now, what does that trigger? Um, well, there's still some questions over Percy Hobart's state of health, and at this point he's replaced by Major General Montague Burroughs. Right. We don't hear much from him in this story, but uh, it, it's it, uh, Percy Hobart had done a great job. I think we all agree with that. Uh, and he goes on to do a, an even better job, in some sense, of forming the 79th Armoured Division. What are they famous from? What do you remember of our trip to the Funnies? Oh, yeah, uh, for Normandy. Yeah, the special uh, special tanky things. Now, in mid-October 1942, instead of North Africa, they moved to Chippenham Camp near Newmarket. Is that like North Africa? It's very like Newmarket. It's sort of bleak yeah. desert area yeah. <laughs> inhabited by people who wear Bedouin clothes. Now, on the 20th of October, the 2nd Fife and 4th got their new commanding officer with the arrival of Colonel Alex Scott, 
previously of the fifth, sixth Inniskilling Dragoon Guards. Now, he's the man who's going to take them into action, so it's perhaps worth thinking a bit about him. Uh, Scott, he's generally considered to be an intelligent officer. Now, you often considered officers to be intelligent, didn't you? I did, <laughs> uh, although he was slow to make his mind up while he weighed things up. That's not a bad characteristic, is it, Shirley? Um Making your mind up before you know what's going on is—is is, is that a good idea? Sometimes, not always. It's a—it's a speed of thought, and it, I don't know. It's—it's it's interesting that uh, it when he did make his mind up, I think he took a proper decision uh, and he took firm action. Uh, what would you say? Well, like uh, me, his personality was perhaps dogged by a slight shyness. You won an international shyness competition once. As some of his men considered him not to be a mixer and uh, overly conscious of his rank. Yeah, that's well, that's oral history for you. But actually, I mean... Well, he was he was a colonel. He was a colonel, and privates don't mix... Troopers don't really mix with colonels. So I, I do. I, <laughs> yeah, you do now, yeah. Ah, the list of your colonel chums. Now, one of the new officers attached to the regiment was Charlie Workman, who joined at this time. Originating from Glasgow, Workman had been working as a law apprentice before serving as a ranker with a searchlight battery. Uh, his potential was recognised and he was commissioned into the Royal Armoured Corps after attending Sandhurst. His welcome on arrival at the Second Fife and Fourth Fire Yeomanry was slightly eccentric and in some ways was a, re- a reminder of the pre-war regime. And this is what Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman of uh, One Troop C Squadron had to say. I, I was wheeled in to meet Alex, Alec Scott, the Colonel. His first words were, Well, welcome to the regiment. You've had a long journey. Have a drink. I drew myself up and said, I don't drink, Colonel. I saw a little smile. I wonder how long this will last. That's obviously what the Colonel was thinking. (laughs) Oh, he said, have a tea or something. I was then posted to C Squadron. Alistair Nairn, who was a squadron leader, and he said, do you ride? I said, no. And he said, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm interested in the horses in that engine. I didn't take it out of miss. One of the great things about Sanders was it gave you terrific self-assurance. I reckon I could have run the army by this time. When he says that, he, uh, the horse in the engine, the tank engine, that's what he's on about. But it's interesting, the overconfidence of a, of a, of a very young second lieutenant. Because um, yeah, as we know, that's just what they're like. Now, so a very important influence on workmen was the senior NCOs within his troop. They had far more practical experience in gold than any callow young officer, wet beyond the ears and fresh out of Sandhurst. There seems to be a venom in your voice, though. Now, this is what uh, Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman goes on to say. My two sergeants, Christian Hutton, were both real fifers. A Scotman, a Scotsman who is a fifer, is a particular brand, rather like an Englishman would regard a Yorkshireman, a sort of craggy type with a very particular approach to life. Both of them had been in the Fife and Fourfire Yeomanry for years. They were older than I was. I could see when they got on a tank and the way they handled their tanks, that these guys were knew what it was all about. We were out in a wood and I was in my tent and I heard Christie say to wee Huey Hatton, oh, where's that young Charlie fellow? He's a new officer. I just didn't really say that, Gary. We'll have to train him, same as the rest. I don't think tact is the feature of a fifer. They were not into tact. They were into blunt truth. Do you enjoy that? Now, Scottish, English or Welsh, they all began to mould together as a unit. 
Real or imagined, grievances were gradually smoothed out as they realised that they had far more in common than the minor cultural differences that divided yeah, them. Yeah, that's that's true. And, and they do. They're starting to blend together. But what's the underlying theme? It's training, 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 training. It just, it just really never seems to and end, lunch. does it? And lunch. You do like a lunch, do no, I like a lunch. Now, the exercises was uh, as realistic as they could manage, and there was often scant respect paid to local farmers' crops and fences. And once more, you're going to tell us what Second Lieutenant Charlie Workman has to say. Attack such and such a village. The opposing enemy will be another regiment. You were given an indication of where they were, and their idea was to ambush you. That meant reading a map. Am I in a valley? <laughs> What do I find across the hill? You literally went where you wanted to go. If that meant knocking down a wall and planting yourself in the middle of a cornfield, that's precisely what you did. At that stage, you didn't have to respect walls. Mm. Now, there were, however, moments of great comedy value, normally triggered by the wireless system, which demanded extreme care if individual wireless operators and tank commanders were not to accidentally broadcast their... um, ribald comments now i better explain that because what it is is it's one mic and you're either on the intercom talking to the lads in the tank or you're talking to the whole regiment and you're going to tell us the experiences of trooper roy valance four troop a squadron coming back in from an exercise the whole regiment was on the net and the co came over the air to the squadron leaders and said practice picking up targets on the way back to practice the gunners Then you heard A Squadron leader telling his squadron to do this. B Squadron, C Squadron, a very lengthy business. Then at the end you heard a Scottish voice come over saying, Swing the effing turret round a bit, Jock. A silly old bastard wants us to practice gunnery. The commander, thinking he was speaking on the intercom, was speaking on the A set, which everybody heard. The air was blue from the colonel after that. And now we're going to take a break for an important message from our sponsors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I hope it wasn't Angersold again, Pete. Well, that would really rub it in, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, um, the, so there they are. That, that's uh, we've just uh, talked. We, talk, we were talking about the exercises and, and the intercom and all the, and the rest of it. The, 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 the minor humour that, that arises in any soldier's business, but then, then there comes the news they've all been waiting for. What's that? What is it, Gary? They were told that they would be leaving on the twenty second of February, nineteen forty three. Where are they going? Where are they going? Well, men uh, are sent on embarkation leave and then the tanks were dispatched off to Glasgow ready for the long voyage on transport ships to the, the Middle, Middle East. East. Oh, Gary, the second five for four for Germany. They're on their way to war at last. You've got the, you got the number of years wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't three or four years who waited. It was just one or two. You've got it all wrong. Now, this is what Trooper Leslie Gibson of the uh, anti-aircraft troop HQ squadron had to say. I moved the soft vehicles up from Chippenham. We stopped at Doncaster and it was then pretty obvious we were going north to Glasgow. Then we were turned back. The tanks actually went on the ship. Well, according to the brigadier, we were disappointed, but I don't think the men were all that disappointed. He gave us seven days leave to let us do what we wanted to hide our disappointment. <laughs> now, the regimental historian, he also refers to the regiment as subsiding like a deflated balloon. But, do you know, and, and this is human nature. The men are a lot more ambivalent, aren't they? Uh, and, and I think this quote from Trooper Ron Forbes, 4 Squadron, uh, 4 Troop B Squadron. Why do I keep getting things wrong? What because is- you're you. Yeah, thanks, Gary. And he says this, You did feel unwanted, a bit annoyed. We always said they were keeping the five and four fast to bowl up the tanks and drive into Berlin. These are the sort of thoughts that went through your mind. Why was it that four years after we were mobilised that we'd never got into any action at all? Personally, and this is the bit, isn't it? Personally, I was quite happy. <laughs> I'd have been quite happy driving around the Yorkshire Moors for the whole of the war. I'm not one of these types burst into in a VC. And that's the human nature. Because, of course, you wanted to test yourself. You wanted to do your bit for your country. You wanted to, 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 to see what war is. But you're also scared. Because, of course, you might get killed. So why was the deployment cancelled? Why? Well, it wasn't a vendetta. Against, it was. It was a vendetta. <laughs> against the second fight and fourth our yeomanry. It was a change in policy as regards the whole of the 11th Armoured Division. Hey, well, well, what, what, what's changed? Well, what, what is it, Gary? Explain to me. Well, they had been intended for North Africa, but the fighting in Tunisia in early 1943 had indicated that what was really needed in that theatre of war was more infantry and not another armoured division. So what do the men have to do? Well, it's back to training, 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 routine training. And lunch. And more and lunch. Sorry, Gary. What about breakfast? No, just lunch. Now, more and more men are beginning to wonder, what's the point of it all? What is the point? 
in such circumstances, their minds could easily begin to wander into non-military pursuits. <laughs> My mind often wanders into non-military pursuits. Um, so, June 43, uh, it's, it's a bloody never-ending tour of Britain, isn't it, really? They, they seem to be getting around everywhere. So where'd they go this time? Well, they settled into a camp just outside Rudston, a small village some five miles from Bridlington in North Yorkshire, seaside town again, Bridlington. Yeah. Now, when the weather worsened, they moved into billets in Bridlington. Now, that's all. That's obviously a moves important. But what's really important about this time, what's really important, and that is the arrival of the weapon they go to war in. What is it, Gary? It's a full complement of Sherman tanks. Ooh. Now, any tank's always a compromise as the designers strive to attain a balance of the desirable but incompatible concepts of firepower, armour protection, speed, manoeuvrability and mechanical reliability. Now, that those things, I mean, while tech, at a certain stage of technology, you can't have all of them. Don't you remember with yeah. the Invincible? We talked about this with HMS Invincible of the battlecruiser. You can't have it all. And everything's going to be a compromise. Now, what's happening to the British? What, 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 why, why are they? It's an American tank. Why are the British using an American tank? Well, they've got themselves into a state of confusion in their twin desires for a fast cruiser tank with anti-tank armour-piercing firepower and a heavier infantry close support tank with heavy armour and a high-explosive shell-compatible gun. Well, now, uh, so what a... What a why are they confused? Well, 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 some people aren't confused. What? Well, well, I mean, who's the person who's got most experience in tank warfare in the British at uh, this stage? Because th- this is practical experience now. This isn't a hobo anymore. This is Montgomery. Yeah, it's Montgomery, and it's based on his experiences in the Western Desert. So what does he think? Well, he doesn't see the need for such a, a dichotomy and demanded... <laughs> You are so cruel to me. And demanded a single tank capable of fulfilling both roles and saw the mechanically reliable American Sherman M4 uh, with the 75mm dual-purpose gun as the nearest thing to that ideal then available. So 75mm is bigger than 40? It's uh, 35mm bigger. Oh, your math skills are just... I might not be able to say dichotomy. <laughs> dichotomy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think the pundits will have enjoyed that. Uh, now, now, is the Sherman a successful compromise in in our view? Again, we are we are we are outsiders looking in. We're not experts, are we? But how, from our non-expert opinion, what do we think? Well, the Sherman sort of falls between the two stalls. The armour was too thin for a true infantry close support role, while in any tank versus tank duel, it ended up being both undergunned and under-armoured in comparison to the rather more complete new German tanks, such as the Panther and the Tiger. That, that's a bit all in the future, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it, it, but but that, that's comment. It's fair comment, isn't it? It's all in the future for the lads of the second 554 fire so. Uh, so what do you think they thought as they gathered round their new Shermans, the, the Sherman tank? Um, I think the overall, and I listened to a lot of people talking about it, the overall reaction was positive. And uh, just to give us an idea, we've got a summary from our friend Trooper Roy Valance of 4 Troop A Squadron. The Crusaders went and we got the new American Sherman tanks. We had one or two per squadron and we all did training on them. Our first impression was that it was a giant tank, much bigger than what we'd had in the past. For a start, the crew was five 
and it was very high to climb up on until one got used to it. It was very modern looking compared with our old Crusaders, more streamlined and smoother lines. The 75mm gun looked much, much more powerful than the old two-pounders we'd been used to. With a coaxial browning 30mm and a hull browning 30mm in the co-driver's compartment, on the Coppola was a 50, uh, 0.50 machine gun. It had the usual two-inch bomb thrower in the roof for the smoke. Very comfortable inside, quite spacious. One could stand up quite easily. The seats were adjustable. The engine was a five-bank Chrysler. Basically, motor, motor engine, uh, car engines, all banked together. Very now, reliable. Now let, let's look at let's let's look at it's a it's a big step forward on the Crusader. And uh, what do you think? So let's let's go through what what we're talking about here. Uh, they first they got one or two per troop, then they got all the rest. That's that's what we're talking about. So so what's the the initial impression? It's it's what it's what Valance said. It, it's a big beast. It's more than eight feet high. It, it weighing in at well thirty four tons. Uh, Reasonable top speed, about twenty-six miles per hour. What? That's, that's big. What, what? What do you think the gunners thought? Well, they certainly appreciated the destructive potential of the medium-velocity seventy-five millimeter gun. That boasted a range of over ten thousand yards, and it had some genuine heating power. And that—that—it's—it's it's just much better than the bloody pop gun, the two, the two-pounder. And that's all they'd had on most of the Crusaders, the Valentines, and the Matildas. So yeah, internally he mentioned it, didn't he? Internally. Room to bring. American tanks have got more room inside them. Uh, uh, spacious, comfortable. Uh, what are British tanks like? <laughs> well, they're cramped, uh, and 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 as a result, you know, less functional. Uh, they, they, yeah, yeah. They're, no, the British tanks are functional. <laughs> less functional. <laughs> no, right. I, I entirely endorse your remarks. Dichotomy. <laughs> so they're sort of functional and not functional in a way. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, the armour, well, two and a half inch frontal armour, uh, one and a half inch of side armour, seemed a lot at the time. We'll be coming back to that uh, um, now. Uh, <laughs> do you think people knew what the... How, if you just come into a tank, what do you think your impressions are? Do you think you realise the faults? No, of course not. You, you, you know, we're going to hear from... Uh, uh, Gordon uh, Fiddler, who'd previously been an electrician's apprentice in Newbury. And and like many, he was blissfully unaware of the penetration capabilities of German guns. And uh, as a result, he felt a sense of real security in his magnificent new tank. Well, of course he did. And experience only would tell them, wouldn't it? So you're going you're gonna to give a quote from Gordon Fiddler. He was in Ace Squadron. I felt that being in a tank was marvellous. Nobody could get me in here. This is really why I wanted to go into the tanks. Nobody would touch me in here. We'd heard of bigger guns, but I could never imagine AP, he means armour piercing, shot penetrating a tank. At the beginning, I was quite happy to be in a tank regiment because I thought we were immune from being knocked out. I don't think you could imagine an AP shell going through one side and out the other or setting fire to it. Oh, yeah, well, we'll come to all that. Now, again, they're going to go through a new tank. What do they have to do? They've got to do all the training again. So individual training, their individual roles. Then what do they have to do next? Well, they've got to be welded together, as you described it earlier, as a crew. Then they've got the troop exercises, the squadron exercises. They're building up, building up. And one of the big exercises was that exercise Blackcock, uh, which where they, they actually have the pleasure of playing the enemy. Um these exercises are meant to be getting increasingly realistic, aren't they? 
Yeah, they're not only testing their military skills, but their endurance levels as well. So that the men uh, were on iron rations in field conditions. And uh, once more, you're going to relay what 2nd Lieutenant Charlie Workman has to say. Blackheart was realistic. They got us all together and they explained that in this exercise, we would do exactly what we'd do for real. In other words, if we had to go through a wall, knock down the side of a barn and sight our tanks in the middle of a field of wheat, that was precisely what we would do. They explained the maximum damage that could be inflicted by the division. You're talking about 200 tanks milling around. Uh, it had been calculated and they had arranged for that amount of extra food to be brought from America so that one should have no compunction, compunction about putting your tanks where they should be. Bit of mispronunciation by compunction. me. Compunction. Yeah, compunction. Dichotomy. Com- dichotomy. Sausage. Now, the 11th Armour Division were undergoing a series of changes. The most important one was in December 1943 with the arrival of a new divisional commander in the form of Major General Philip, known as Pip, Roberts. Now, he's a relatively young and, and vigorous officer. Uh, he'd only... And this listen to this promotion, Gary. He'd... <laughs> something sadly absent from your own military career. He'd be, he was only the adjutant, which I presume is a, a captain, uh, of the 6th Royal Tank Regiment when the war broke out back in thirty nine. Um, well, how had he done? Well, he rocketed through the ranks uh, and he built up an unparalleled expertise in armoured warfare, which led to him being promoted uh, as an acting Major General at just, guess how old, Gary? 104. Now, 37 years old. <laughs> And that's the age he was when he was put in to command the 11th Armoured Division. I think that's amazing. Now, who's in command of the brigade that the, the, the 54 fires are in? Well, the 29th Armoured Brigade also had a change uh, as Brigadier Charles Roscoe Harvey took over command. Um, now, Roscoe Harvey was commissioned in 1920 into the 10th Royal Hussars, who were then still a horsed cavalry regiment. He devoted much of his time as a subaltern to his stellar career as a jockey, even participating in the Grand National, Peter Aintree. Did you win in the recent Grand National? No, lost heavily. (laughs) It was then when riding overweight, he picked up and uh, subsequently adopted the nickname of Roscoe. Oh, where's that come from? Because well, <laughs> I, I originally thought that was his name. I genuinely did. But it's, it, it's actually, his name isn't Roscoe, is it? The, no, it's, uh, it's after Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, the film star of the 1920s. He had an unfortunate end to his career, which we're not going to talk about. But Well, mainly because we don't know anything about it, Pete. Yeah, we've got an inkling about Now, on it. arriving at the 29th Armour Brigade, he made his present felt in no uncertain fashion. I love this quote. This is a real character's quote. It does, I fear, listeners of a delicate nature, feature swearing. So Gary's chosen to do this one. And this is what Brigadier Roscoe Harvey of 29th Armour Brigade has to say. The first day in my office, I was surprised that nobody came to see me. And I told my brigade major so. He said, well, sir, the red light was on outside your door. I asked him what the hell he meant by a red light. He told me that when the light was on, it meant that the brigadier did not want to be disturbed. So I said, you will now smash that red light. Anybody who wants to visit me can always do so. If for some reason I don't want to see them, I'll tell them to fuck off. <laughs> and he's a real character. And as this goes on, you'll find more about him. There's someone else who arrives around about this time, a really significant arrival in the sense that he's only a young officer. He's only a lieutenant. But he, he becomes, in my view, the, the and their view, that's my, my view comes from them, the most renowned tank commander in, in the whole regiment. Uh, who is he, Gary? 
Well, he is William Steele Brownlee, and uh, he was born in Greenock, which is just outside Glasgow, I think, in yep. 1923, and had been educated at the Greenock Academy. Uh, as a schoolboy, he had falsified his age to join the local defence volunteers on their formation in June 1940. And indeed, he was even promoted to the dizzy heights of Lance Corporal. There's a lot of Lance Corporals in this. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people getting promoted to Yeah, it. where he found himself giving orders to his science master, who was a mere private. I think that's great. It's also a good thing. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, where does he? What does he go on to do? Well, he goes on to study engineering at Glasgow University, where he would soon find himself struggling to keep it uh, to keep up. It was a, a, a sandwich course, so he was attached to an engineering factory helping manufacture landing. Eventually, it gets too much for him. He, he can't. So, in August 1942, he volunteers to join the Royal Armoured Corps. Uh, usual basic training, and then he went to Sandhurst and he was commissioned as a second lieutenant. Now, he's always known, uh, his, his name uh, is uh, William, but he's always known, or and we will know him henceforth as Steele Brownlee mostly. He, he, he very rarely uses his first name. Uh, how would you describe him as a character? Well, he was described as a real live wire, bright and cheerful, uh, with a dry sense of humour. He had to have a dry sense of humour because he joined them at Bridlington. Uh, on the 13th of February 1944 and uh, you're going to read a quote from Lieutenant Steele Brownlee of 4 Troop A Squadron. I was wheeled in to see the CO, uh, Colonel Alex Scott, who sat at his desk and looked me in the eye for a full minute before saying anything. I looked straight back. At least that's my version. (laughs) After all the training and the bullshit, it was great to be in a real regiment. Moreover, everything was aimed at being ready to cross the channel as part of the the 11th Armoured Division and help put an end to the ghastly war. Now, so there's different commanders coming in at all levels, at uh, divisional, brigade and... and, and, uh, What's what's the uh, collective noun for a a group of commanders? It's a a bevy, I think you've described them as. I have in the past, yes, but, you know. Um, There's another... Huge preparatory exercise. What's this one called? This one's called Exercise Eagle and was designed to be as realistic as possible in recreating active service conditions. It's not all though, is it? No, the tanks also went a couple of times to conduct a live firing practice at uh, Kirkhud Brightshire Rangers. I can't say that. Neither can I. I think it's more Kirkubrick. No, I can't say it. Scottish friends... I'm sure our Scottish friends will help us out. Yeah. Now, during the firing, Jack Edwards was given a, a, a first inkling of what lay ahead for so many of them. And this is what Trooper Jack Edwards of 4 Troop B Squadron has to say. Aye. One of the Shermans caught fire. Why, I don't know. Whether it was oil on the engines, lack of cleaning or what, I don't know. But the engine caught fire. They were messing about with fire extinguishers. They couldn't get out of the tank because it was about 18 inches deep in mud everywhere. Another tank rang alongside and all the crew jumped off. The order was move at least 20 yards away from the burning tank. So we did. That's when I saw my first brewed-up Sherman. All the ammunition started burning, bursting and exploding. It was a terrible sight. I didn't realise the same sort of thing might happen when a shell came through the tank. Wow. Uh, And it did. Uh, This is what lies ahead for so many of them. 
Now, what else is happening? Well, they're getting a, a, they're getting some more specialist tanks. There's one that's really, but they get an anti-aircraft tank. They get all a bulldozer tank. But there's one that's really important. What's that, Gary? That's the Sherman Firefly variant, which had a much more powerful three-inch caliber gun. Uh, so that's a seventeen-pounder with a four-man crew. As the increased size of the gun left no room for it's a tow driver. No, there's just no room, is there? Uh, What's the intention of this gun? Why, why, why a seventeen pounder? Well, it's it, it, it's so that they can uh, have a gun capable of knocking out the latest German tank designs, but also capable of firing uh, uh, HE shells some ten thousand yards. Yeah, so, so this gun is just about capable of knocking out the Panther. Uh, probably not the, t- but the pro- the thing is, the idea is you'd have one per uh, one per troop, and it would be called forward. We'll be dealing with all this when we get onto to the. Uh, what you, how would you sum up the whole thing? Well, slowly but surely, the regiment is once again just about ready uh, for its long overdue active service. What would you say was beckoning? The second front. And you've got a, a final quote now from Trooper Roy Valance, headquarters tr- troop at this time, a squadron. He'd been put in the, uh, the uh, bulldozer tank. Uh, so what does he say? There were lots of rumours we were moving. We were quite happy there and we were in no hurry to leave. But at the same time, most of the regiment had been training, training, training since 1939. And the feeling was, well, let's get it over, get it done and get back home. What? I think that sums up the attitude great. That people people were worried, they're scared, but at the same time they've been training a long time. They want to they want to get out there, get it bloody over and done with, as he just as he says. Uh, and that's we'll be moving on to. They go overseas, and we'll be following the story of the five D four fires, as they don't want to be called. Uh, well, I hope time. they don't have any dichotomies. You, you, you mastered that word, mastered it. Okay, thank you very much, Gary, for joining me, and thank you, me, for being me. It's all dichotomy to me. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?